Welcome to Project A Plus, guys. Um, I'm one of your hosts, my name is Hugh. My boy, uh, Dixie Mason. I, I want to say Mason. Well, I can't believe you forgot that classic bit from uh, Clifford. It's not like you don't. E- it's like you don't even listen to this show. Well, the joke was that I said Dixon instead of Mason, which is a reference to the Mason Dixon line, sort of Dixie. Uh, I think I said Dixon instead of Dixie. You did say Dixon, which is why I was that's thinking. why the joke was. Maybe ruined. I would have gotten it if you said yeah. <laughs> if I said it, the right word. This is bad. Yeah, it would have been. It would have been the greatest thing that's ever been said by All you. Right, so I'll, I'll do another take. <laughs> yeah, let's let's do it. See, this is what I mean. You can't record a podcast in an hour. Yeah, we fucking can. No, we can't. No, but we know. But we know that that's the, the, the these are the stakes. Like this is the. the that's form. not gonna. It's not gonna help. I'm, it's gonna, gonna, I'm just it's gonna, gonna tell help. you right now. So did you like Velvet Buzz Mine? <laughs> no. We got we got to do an actual episode, which includes all our fucking bullshit. Yeah, this is going to be one of the best, tightest episodes, and it will be like no, a new era of like our podcast is not tight. That's one of the charming things about it is how not tight it is. <laughs> uh, wait, so should we introduce the podcast uh, again? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, this podcast is is Project A Plus. We talk about uh, each other. We talk about life. We talk about movies. Chop fest. Chop fest. <laughs> <laughs> but our specialty is uh, Netflix original films by middling talents. Well, now we got to introduce ourselves first. Okay. Hi, my name's Hugh. I'm one of the hosts of Project A+. Hey, I'm Hunter. I'm the other... I'm the co- co-host of Project A+. Oh. How are you doing today, Hugh? What fuck are you eating, man? Just some chips. You want a clean introduction. How are you doing today, Hugh? I'm doing well. How are you doing today, Hunter? Doing great. Are you drinking some wine right now? I am, yes. What sort of wine? Crisp, dry, white. Gross. Uh, would you like to know the brand name? It's uh, Tangled yeah, yeah. Vine. Where was it uh, brewed? They didn't really brew wine, but uh, it was it harvested and fermented. Where were it brewed? Let me have a look if it has a location. <sighs> Tangled Vine Estate, so I'm assuming it was brewed on the Tangled Vine Estate. It's a product of Australia. Enjoy with seafood, chicken, and antipasto. So the address on it is Hawthorne East, which is actually not far from me. Wow. In Victoria. But I'm assuming the vineyard is not actually there. You should go visit the vineyard. And see how the magic happens, how they get the grapes into the box. I'm drinking some jam jar, which is very sweet, which is why I like it. Mine was made in South Africa. Some jam jar? Yeah. So now we have on the heels of uh, Dan Gilroy's successful first film, although he has made a second film before this one, but I, I would say the the Netflix deal is in the glow of his first film, which was um, Nightcrawler. His first directorial effort. He's been writing screenplays since 1992. Did you think that the film Nightcrawler had value in it? Uh, I wasn't a big fan of it, no. Why is that? I I thought the satirical angle was pained. Oh, what? That's funny. I wonder what that... That kind of reminds me of something that's we'll probably talk about in a bit. Maybe. Nightcrawler focused on Jake Gyllenhaal as this seedy uh, photographer. Mm-hmm. 
who was who would go to absurd and violent lengths to make a buck, I guess. Yeah, it's a it's a media satire. Yeah. But it also functioned as a mood piece with yeah. elements of horror um, to distinguish itself from just a pure comic satire or something. I think you'd agree with me that the elements of the film that are not satirical are much more successful than the elements that are. Yes, yeah. There are, there are a couple of sequences that are, are well handled. Um, and Nike, but, yeah. and I think I think Jake Gyllenhaal gives a good performance in it too. I didn't like Jake Gyllenhaal's performance in that particularly. I will I, say but, it's very mannered. But I will, yeah, it's yeah, incredibly mannered. But I think I think it was intentionally mannered, and I thought as a mannered performance of someone who is mannered, I thought it was good. <laughs> but I, I I should qualify my judgment of Jake Gyllenhaal by saying that I don't normally find him that appealing as an actor. Mm. So I, I might just have a bit of a Jake Gyllenhaal problem. Um, so Dan Gilroy then went on to make. Um, Another film that I hadn't heard much about, actually. So I was surprised this wasn't the film that... It got a lot of negative buzz when it was released. It got mixed reviews, which is Roman J. Israel Esquire, um, otherwise known as Inner City. It got some uh, It got some very positive reviews, actually. Yeah, I think that a lot of the reviews praised Denzel Washington's performance, but say that the, the film surrounding it wasn't quite up to it. That's like saying the film was on. Yeah. <laughs> the camera uh, functioned in this Ooh. movie. Because Denzel Washington is by and large always pretty good in the movies that he's in. Yeah, so that came out a couple of years ago. So Nightcrawler was 2014. So it came out in 2017. Roman J. Israel Esquire came and went, and I didn't actually hear about it when it when it came and went. I missed it, but I was I think I was traveling at the time. So I'm I think I and I think I'm a little more plugged into like film stuff than you are. Hmm. Um. And then we have 2019's Velvet Buzzsaw. Which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival this year. And then distributed via Netflix. Did it also get any theatrical release whatsoever, or is it just exclusive? Uh, I, I do not know. Okay. So let's talk about Velvet Buzzsaw. I'm a critic. These paintings are killer. I'm a critic. Come stay in my villa. I'm a So in, in contrast to Roman J. Israel Esquire, at least in subject matter, this seems to be more of a spiritual successor to Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler. So uh, like Nightcrawler, this film stars both Jake Gyllenhaal and Rene Russo. Rene Russo, of course, being Gilroy's wife. Yeah. It's a little bit of nepotism there. A little bit, but I, I don't know if I feel... Oh no, like Rene Russo's career has not been especially strong recently. Hence hence the nepotism. Yeah, but I don't, I don't feel so bad about her being cast in this. Well, I, mean, I guess I feel bad for her, but <laughs> for Mary um, All right, so <laughs> let's 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 talk what it, uh did you say much more about what you actually thought about Nightcrawler? Did you like it more than I I thought did? it was pretty enjoyable. I mean, I watched it, you know, in the in the phase of my film love where if anything was like remotely like stylish, I would get into it you know yeah i definitely liked it more than you did okay. i do think the media stuff was pretty dumb but i think it really works as a mood piece and i really like jake joe in it yeah okay um, i also like riz Ahmed a lot uh, in it so that's basically what i thought about it yeah he was actually quite good in it yeah 
Oh, funny that he was in that and in uh, Rogue One. Rizumad, I mean. Mm. Anyway, uh, which is written by, of course, written by uh, Dan Gilroy's brother, Tony Gilroy. Tony Gilroy, who directed The Bourne Legacy, which uh, yes. Dan Gilroy co-wrote with him. Yes. Yeah. And another Gilroy, John Gilroy, edited uh, Velvet Buzzsaw. Presumably the third Gilroy. Uh, Velvet Buzzsaw is centred in the art community, and it's an ensemble piece. So we do follow a number of characters uh, in, who represent different functions within this community. Uh, chief among them is Morph van der Volt, played by... Van der Waal. Van der Waal. Well, I'm assuming that the W is a V, because it sounds German. So, Van der Waal. <laughs> van der Waal. Van der Waal. I don't know, does anyone ever pronounce his surname? I just remember they call him Morph so. all the time. So, <laughs> so we can Morf. say whatever we fucking want. Anyway, Van so... Morph van der Waal, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, is an influential art critic. Apparently the art critic who can make or break an exhibition and an artist. I'm already, I'm already laughing. Hilarious. And the other characters include a... Uh, I don't know, what was she? Like an art dealer exhibition owner? Yeah, like a, the owner of a gallery, I guess. Played by Rene Russo. Uh, someone who has an intermediary between, uh, you know, people who buy art, rich people who buy art and artists. Well, she's like an art agent in a way because she represents the artist. Like, like they sign with her. And she exhibits them and blah, blah, blah. And she, yeah, I think she has the, the gallery. She's a gallery, it? yeah. What, whatever the, whatever it is, I don't really know that much about the artwork. What, what, is her, what is her name? What is her name? It's a very good question. Can you tell me? Yeah, it is Redora Hayes. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> Perfect. Just like, just two good names right off the bat. Is it Zor Ashton, who is Josephina, who is... Yes. That's like the third lead. They're like the three lead characters. They're the three like focal... And she's initially an assistant, and uh, and there's some other characters surround, uh, surrounding them. But the main thrust of the narrative is that um, Josephina comes across um, a dead person in her apartment, who turns out to be well, in her apartment in her apartment complex. Yeah, in her apartment complex. Not in her apartment. <laughs> no, not in the room of her apartment. In the spaces between the apartments in the apartment complex, she finds a, a dead man lying there. Yeah. doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. This is all you need to know. This dead person she finds. Turns out that that person is a reclusive and troubled artist. Uh-huh. And, um, and she discovers from the movie, uh, whatever. <laughs> what's it, whatever? What? You, it's like you didn't even watch the movie. D's. Vetral D's. Vetral D's, right. <laughs> and uh, there's some... There's one more time. One more time. Vetral D's. Vetral D's. There's some moving people uh, removing his stuff. And they tell her that he left specific instructions to have all his artwork destroyed. So uh, she ends up in his apartment because there's a cat. And she notices and she's like, wow, this artwork is amazing. This, this can't be destroyed. So she takes it all. And uh, apparently it's amazing art. Everyone says so. Um, Morph assesses it and he's like, this is amazing. This is, this is brilliant. Um, it puts her in good stead with uh, Rene Russo, who muscles in on it when she finds out about it, and they work together and blah blah blah. You know, so there's this amazing new artist, and there's various rival galleries and factions uh, trying to find out about it and find out about this artist and try and undermine their rival or whatever, whatever. You know, all that sort of 
machinations about the art world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it turns out it's uh, the the artist. Uh-huh. Uh, What's his name? Vetral D's. Vetral D's. Vetral D's. What about him? He had a very troubled upbringing. Um, murdered his father, reportedly. Yeah, yeah. Went to some experimental mental asylum where they were uh, subjected to uh, illegal treatments or something. Well, I've, I forgot about that part. And then he apparently killed one of his co-workers and blah, blah, blah. You know, he was a nutcase. Yeah, he's a bad guy. And then he wanted all his artwork destroyed. So, uh, karma comes back to bite these people who attempt to profit off this this uh, disturbed man's art. This Mr. D's. In the form of paintings that come alive and kill them. Yeah. The end. Uh-huh. <laughs> wait, 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 Hugh. I thought this movie was an hour and 45 minutes. There has to be more than that. Haven't we been talking for an hour and 45 minutes? It felt like it. It's 26 minutes. That's the plot. I mean, there are other people in it, like John Malkovich, who plays an artist who, ever since he went sober, is not good at art anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just like you. Yeah. That's why I'm so good at art currently. Because you, you're, you're drinking mm-hmm. the job. That's why our podcast is getting better. I want, I, want, I want to hear your opinion of this film first. Oh, I thought it was uh, nigh unwatchable. <laughs> <laughs> Except for, okay, no, I'm going to admit the statement a little bit. Uh, for the first 45 minutes, I was like, this is literally the most insufferable film we've watched for the podcast. Just no, no small feet. Wow. No small feet. But uh, I did, uh, it sort of turned around itself a bit when uh, people started getting killed. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed some of the kills. Not that the first one was pretty lame, where the guy gets dragged into the the monkey, whatever. Who cares? Um, but uh, when Tony Collette got chopped up in the thing, I quite enjoyed that. <laughs> and um, I liked when Jake Gyllenhaal got murdered by a dumb art robot. <laughs> I thought that was really funny. <laughs> uh, I like. I did not like. Uh, what's her name? I didn't really enjoy. I didn't. I, both uh, Josephine and uh, Redora Hayes, uh, his character, they both had pretty lame deaths. Um, but I enjoyed those. The two ones that I mentioned quite a bit. Um, besides that, I thought this movie was really bad, and uh, <laughs> I really hated it. <laughs> and what did you think? Well, I'm glad you went first because this is this is playing out like I hoped it would, perhaps. Because I think I'm going to be a little bit more positive than you might expect really? about this film. <laughs> That's funny, and for some curious reasons, because on paper, uh, a, a lot of this is 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 dreadful. <laughs> like it really is. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and in execution, let's be fair. Yeah, yeah, and in execution, <laughs> but there, the, I'll get to the execution side of it. Like, the, this this seems to be somewhat engineered to to enrage me, right? Like, this seems like the sort of crap I hate, like this type of satire. So, again, moving from his first film, Nightcrawler, which looked at the um, media The senior side of uh, news media. It, you know, what's another shitty subject I can tackle that will um, that I couldn't care less about? And that's like a satire of, of the art world. Like, his next film should be a satire of Hollywood. Like, that's, that's where we should go from there. Yeah, yeah. He should remake The Player. He talked about The Player as being an inspiration for this film, in fact. So, there you go. That's funny. Um, but anyway, 
So the thing is, and I was and and seeing the trailers, like seeing Jake Gyllenhaal dressed up as this ridiculous art critic with his uh, Coke bottle glasses. Yeah, I was like, this is going to be an insufferable film with an insufferable, like ridiculous performance by Jake Gyllenhaal at the center of it. And yet, yet I will say that somehow I didn't find it unenjoyable. Wow, I mean, neither did neither neither did I. And be- and I will say, like, sort of the flip side of you, I will say that I kind of enjoyed the lead up. And really? by the time people actually started getting murdered, wow, it got less interesting to me. That's crazy. Or at least after the, uh, at least certainly by the the time. Okay, spoiler alert. By the time we get to the like the lead up to the final three murders of the lead three protagonists, uh-huh. it's lost all tension or anything, or and it's just kind of like the logical conclusion to what they've set up, and it's just kind of boring. Yeah, it's not, it's not enjoyable. No, but I agree, like, at a point where, like, there's the the Tony Collette murder and that sort of stuff, it's it's kind of the peak of the film, and then it has nowhere else to go, essentially. Yeah. So kind of up, like, the kind of the lead-up to that point, I was like, I, I'm, I don't actually hate this. That's crazy. What, what, what did you point to it as something that you enjoyed? <laughs> I don't know why, like, so first of all, there's a thing that affects most of these Netflix productions. And I don't know if it's just the fact that I am watching it on a TV, but they look like the budget is less, and the production value, I should say, the production values are lower than you'd expect from a film that you'd see in the cinemas. It actually looks that way, right? For sure. Like it looks cheaper than Nightcrawler, even if it may not have been. But there's something about it that, that feels like television. Um, like it, it just didn't have a particularly illustrious cinematic look to me. No. It kind of looked flat. And pretty much all Netflix original films are guilty of this, I think. Except for like Roma, I guess. Part of my enjoyment might be that I was approaching this with such low expectations <laughs> that uh-huh. it didn't need to do especially much to maybe raise my attention. Yeah, I guess I guess that's my my failure here because I I didn't have high expectations as but I thought it would at least be like kind of fun, you know. But it was not. So, so the curious thing for me, and the thing I would signal out that made me enjoy this more than I otherwise would have, is actually Jake Gyllenhaal. Really? Which is well, weird. I thought, it was, I thought it was very bad. So the thing is that um, the character as conceived seems to call for like an exaggerated, cynical portrayal of a critic. Yeah. Like as a horrible, self-absorbed person. Yeah. And he seems to make decisions in his acting, and this could well be Gilroy, of course, directing uh-huh. that performance. Because clearly that's a collaboration between Yeah, them. that underplays that, the stereotype that it could have been. Like, he doesn't play it quite in the same way that he does his very mannered performance, as you described in Nightcrawler. It seems to be a little bit more... I, I hesitate to say human, because I don't think the characters are very fleshed out in this at all. No. But I think there is something in his performance that made him more sympathetic than I was expecting him to be. Really? Well, I did not get that whatsoever. And this is weird because I don't know if Gilroy's intention is to make any of the characters particularly sympathetic. No. And that's one of the reasons I hated this movie so much, actually. But but this is the weird thing. And, and I hate, I genuinely hate a lot of um, satire in this vein that portray people as... Un- as the point of the satire is to portray them as unsympathetic. I don't think that makes for interesting satire. Which is, typ- which is most of the characters in this. Yeah, but that's that's what it seems to be in conception. But for some reason, maybe it's just the flatness of the execution. <laughs> I didn't find a lot of the characters that unlikable. 
and I actually found like operating in this world was was more that's why it was kind of enjoyable and and particularly that's like crazy tom tom stutridge as well oh, i thought it was terrible who's this weird south african guy um and i quite liked the costume design on him the hipster uh, kind of art critic i, hate, I hated that <laughs> costume design um and there was like machinations with him and this is these are all things that as i'm describing them if if someone was explaining this film to me i'd go like this sounds like absolute torture yeah because because it was <laughs> but I, I didn't find it unenjoyable as as it was as it was unfolding before me and i i don't quite know why but like i i I was more sympathetic towards some of the characters and the relationships than the material kind of deserved but on the acting front uh while i appreciated what jake gyllenhaal actually did here i thought Rene russo was pretty bad (laughs) yeah i thought she was too so some even just like on a really basic craft level some of the lines just seem like the wrong they selected the wrong take or something it's like if I, if I can if I can offer my opinion of this, I feel like the performances were incredibly unified in that pretty much all of the characters had, um, they sounded like they were reading lines. Yeah, well, the, so the, the, the first thing that struck me, like, as, as this film started, is, is the dialogue is terrible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, line by line, everything is, is terrible. So it, it is just weird that it got to this point where I'm like, you know, this is not very good, but I don't actually mind being here. That's crazy. And then... And, and, and also, so on a, on a directing front, Dan Gilroy makes very obvious directorial choices at pretty much every juncture that he's faced with uh, doing something. So, for example, when, you know, we get the first murder, uh, so the guy who is trying to steal the paintings and crashes into a gas station and the, some monkeys come alive from a painting and pull him in, right? How are we going to show that? Of course, we're going to show, like, a side shot of monkey reaching out of the painting and then we're going to cut to an exterior shot of the gas station and hear him scream. Like, that's just horror movie 101. And all that sort of directorial stuff is throughout the whole film. There's nothing particularly interesting or enriching about the way he approaches this very thin material. <laughs> no. Um, but the thing... And, and and it's kind of frustrating because I would be happy if this went all out on the horror or something. and kind of Me too. Went a bit further with this story of a disturbed artist, you know... T- taking his revenge uh, it was more like genuinely trashy or something yeah but i feel i feel like the film's like visual palette sort of underserves that too you know it does yeah like it's hard to be trashy when you just look like like basic network television yeah yeah exactly and um uh they begin to tease out this the life of the artist right and that's kind of the this should be the heart of the heart of the film like we should learn more and more about the artist and feel him coming through the you know, coming to life in this narrative and how disturbed he is and how evil a presence or whatever. And we, we totally don't. <laughs> no, like it's just a bad, after we <laughs> get like a, the first few glimpses. And again, how does, how does Dan Geroy choose to show us these glimpses by having one of those white flash flashbacks in high stuttery speed, high oh, shutter yeah. speed sort of stuttered motion. It's just, he goes for every cliche in the book, really. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think it's even, even this thin material, but, there is something in this premise that a better director could have really had fun with, I think. I think that's the, the biggest yeah. issue. But I, again, I did like Tony Gilbert, uh, Tony Collette's death, <laughs> like quite a bit. Like that was like the, the high effects of the movie for me. That's also a problem because that's probably one of the, the better executed, as it were, <laughs> deaths in this film. And it happens like halfway through. And then it, it's just diminishing returns until we get to the, 
the lead characters. Well, it, se- it steps you up to want more creative, like, executions, <laughs> which you never get. Yeah, I also think the problem is, um, so they've named this film Velvet Buzzsaw, which is the name of the band that Rene Russo's character used to have. Yeah, the punk Before band. Uh, the band imploded and uh, her collaborator OD'd or something. And, and then she, she sold out, you know, man. She sold out. Man. So it's kind of representing that uh, artistic compromise. Yeah. Um, to underscore, I guess, the themes of the film. It doesn't really serve as something that would justify it being the title. Even the fact that no. like she gets executed Even if by her tattoo. Despite the fact that she is yeah. dispatched by her velvet bus all. Like that that doesn't really it's a, it's not really the center of this entire film because they don't explore it enough. Yeah, it's a little be. it's a little strange. And then um the film ends, you know, not really not knowing what to do with what it's with all the pieces it's put into place. It's going it has a very inexplicable <laughs> last image. Yeah, there is. So the way the film ends, uh, after it does like... so. The, okay, first it does like the worst cliche of horror films, which is, you know, after the, the paintings have killed all these people involved in selling and distributing the paintings and publicizing it, um, somehow then like a, a, a group of uh, homeless people get hold of a box of recovered paintings. And they start selling them on the street. And then it's like, well, this is going to happen again with other people. Uh, uh, uh. I was kind of hoping Which that like uh, a... <laughs> the movie had committed to its horror logic and just like ended with everyone dying. <laughs> Wouldn't that be more fun? So it's kind of like a here we go again ending. And then it cuts to John Malkovich on the beach. Because he's taken the advice that Rene Russo gave him at some point in the film. To try and recuperate his creative juices, he's gone to her beach house. And he's on the beach. And he's drawing... Uh, lines in the sand and the camera sort of pulls up while the credits are rolling and we see that he's drawn this elaborate sort of network of lines yeah it's probably one of the the best parts of the film but it doesn't have any place <laughs> in terms of like imagery that the film generates it's like yeah okay i could get this in a better film that made this like a an image that was like the culmination of the film's themes or whatever but it's not yeah, it's not uh, and it was based on uh, Dan Gilroy's own experience because he was working on uh, Superman Lives, which is a project that never saw the light of day. And he lost like a year and a half of work. Yeah. Um, Tim Burton and Batman, or Superman film. Yeah. Um, he lost like a year and a half of work and he was really, you know, frustrated by that process. And he did have some experience on the beach. I don't know if he was drawing lines or whatever he was doing. But he based that moment... Um, here and that's kind of the only thing that registers as anything but it's just so divorced from the rest of the film that yeah it just feels like a you're like why is this part of this i just don't even understand it's like it shouldn't have really been in the cut but he was like i can't lose this and obviously it's john malkovich you know he did some nice (laughs) line work john malkovich is an artist in his own right so he, he did have is he really i think he is yeah or he designs clothes i don't know what he designs no he so he draws the sketches that he designs clothes from so whatever mm. <laughs> i guess he's got line control because he, he does a nice job if those were indeed drawn by drawn by him but not just production assistants yeah anyway this film is pretty pretty bad <laughs> i will say but, and yet um, and yet you defended it <laughs> i won't say it's it's i won't say i had a bad experience overall at least for half of it well i i completely disagree with you. i thought it was so hard to watch <laughs> 
See, I think the interesting thing about what I was responding to is that it's kind of, I don't think it's what Dan Gilroy was intending. No. It's just the way, it might just be like the, the failures of his execution made me enjoy it more somehow. That's, that's weird. Because if you're, if you're going for this kind of artwork satire, it was a little bit too toothless or something. Yeah, I mean, I don't really know. I mean, I guess it's just trying to say, like, people should export art, exploit artists. That's, like, the message of the film, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's or, it. or they will kill you with their paintings. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Good film. Great film. <laughs> what did you think of the uh, names of the characters? Uh, I I didn't have a problem with it because it's clearly in it's in keeping with the level of realism on display. I, guess. I will say, I think I think having uh the characters be named as such and be such ridiculous like characters for the most part, I mean, in my opinion anyway, sort of ruin it. Almost ruins the horror movie part of this film for me because like it uh, it it like it it makes me feel like he wants me to enjoy watching them die, right? Mm. Nothing will make me disenjoy something more than if I know that the person who is, like, directing it makes me want to enjoy it, you know? <laughs> like, let me have a genuine reaction to watching them. You didn't know. like uh, John Don Don? No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what did you think about the art in the film? Because <laughs> that was actually a part of enjoyment for me, is, like, them reacting ridiculously to this, like, terrible artwork. <laughs> I mean, that's always a problem in films when they're portraying something that's supposed to be great in another medium. This is the old Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip problem, right? <laughs> and it is funny It is funny in Studio 60 as it is funny here. Where they're like, this is the greatest sketch of all time. <laughs> and then it's just like cuts to like something that's like, what? <laughs> like somehow he's able to... But somehow... Even uh, <laughs> Aaron Sorkin is able to write a worse SNL sketch than SNL is able to write, which is quite an accomplishment in my opinion. Although, yeah, but I will say, um, having seen some SNL sketches, it's not that far off. It's really pretty close. <laughs> but just the, um, I mean, the the discontinuity between like saying something is like genius and then watching it and seeing it's just like this average like. <laughs> It's it's really funny, but the, the the problem is the problem is with that too is I can I can read that as being part of his like satire right. It wants it wants to have a, a disconnect between the art that you see in most of the film and then Vise's art right, or Deese's art, which is supposed to be great. But the problem is that they're not that different. No, and you could be like, oh, the 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 having them be having subpar art for the rest of the movie is kind of like the part of the point the film was making where it's like. Oh, you know, this hardcore, you know, art market. It only it also propagates. It's just about nothing. It just propagates like terrible, bad artwork to begin with. You know, as as someone who is not especially literate in art criticism, me neither am I. I will say that it didn't look especially great. <laughs> no. Anyway, shall shall we pivot to Mr. Gilroy's? I just wanted to look at his curious filmography. He's okay, had. A, he's been involved in a lot of garbage yeah like what and he has some strange gaps in his career as well i guess you know he could obviously could have been doing anything uh between that period but so he came on the scene with free jack <laughs> the mick jagger science fiction classic is mick jagger in it yeah jesus he has a supporting role the emilio estevez, emilio estevez Rene... so that's where he met Rene russo 
right. and they fell in love, presumably. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I I should point out that on pretty much the majority of these films for the early part of his career, he's a co-screenwriter. Yeah. So he's one of a few usually. So he's not necessarily exclusively to brain. But anyway, Free Jack was a piece of garbage flop. That's not very nice. Then he made a film called Chases, which was Dennis Hopper's last directorial effort. Whoa. Which was a flop. And he's, again, one of three writers. Dennis Hopper, uh, an overrated filmmaker. <laughs> yep. Um, it holds the 33% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And then he moved on to Two for the Money with Al Pacino. Haven't heard of it. And that was in 2005. So there's an 11-year gap in his career. Wow. After those first two flops. Where it's probably making love to Rene Russo every day. And then he made probably his best-reviewed uh, writing credit, which was The Fall. The Tarsim Singh film? Yes. I mean, Tarsim Singh is one of the screenwriters, and he's just, again, a co-screenwriter. So maybe he was just like a fixer or something to help shape screenplays. I don't know. I mean, that got mixed reviews, but some at least positive reviews. People, people like it. Um, and then from The Fall, uh, there's a five-year gap, and then he's got a story credit on Real Steel. Wow. <laughs> That's a genius film. And then from there, we move on to The Bourne Legacy. Have you seen that? No. I have seen it, and I, I do not recall anything about it whatsoever. And that is essentially the background of him before he became a director with Nightcrawler. Although he then had one further screenplay-only credit, which was Kong Skull Island. Oh, a uh, torturous movie. So it's a really strange career. Yeah, pretty pretty bad overall, let's say. And I would have assumed from the Nightcrawler press... Because um, I did hear he was a screenwriter before, and this was his first directorial effort. That he had some credibility behind him, but not really. <laughs> is the answer? I feel like I feel like most of his career was based on the fact that he was Tony Gilroy's brother, who's a little bit more well known. Yeah. So he just seemed like a journeyman, like jobbing screen screenwriter, perhaps. Um, yeah. So it may not be necessarily reflective of his talents per se, although I guess this is evidence that perhaps it was. <laughs> um but you know what i mean like he i guess he i guess he had more to him than his screenwriting suggested up until nightcrawler yeah um but not that much more just a little bit no. more <laughs> no just a bit more velvet but some more it is it is just funny like how netflix is just like burning through these <laughs> sort of low-tier directors and i think i think they're just making movies uh as fast as possible so that they have something to do when every other service, every other production company makes their own streaming service. So the thing I wonder, after watching all these shitty Netflix original films... Which you've seen um, so many of now. Yeah, and and some by directors whose previous work we have admired to some degree. Like who? Uh, I guess Duncan Jones, we didn't mind Moon. <laughs> At least I didn't mind Yeah, I guess that's true. That's true. And um, we didn't mind... Green room. No. But I don't know if admired is the right word. We saw some potential there. Yeah. Fair enough. Didn't hate. No. <laughs> unlike, the, unlike the Netflix films that they made. Which is weird because nominally they would give give filmmakers more creativity than they would have. But that I think that could be the issue. 
right yeah in, to a degree like maybe the normal production method where you have to jump through so many hoops and satisfy the money man and yeah it forces you it forces you to be more or more uh you know creative with the stuff that you make yeah maybe because you burn through so many projects and never see the light of day and then you finally yeah. get an opportunity even if it's the film you didn't necessarily want to make most or whatever whatever puts you in this particular position you know and then maybe you're like, I really have to seize this chance. I can't fuck this up. And you put you invest more in it as a result, as opposed to like, hey, Netflix just called me up and they said, hey, do you want to make any film you want? Here's X million dollars. Yeah. $21 million in the case of Velvet Buzzsaw. Jesus Christ. Someone wasted a bunch of money. <laughs> Think about how many, like, schools they could fund or whatever. And I'm sure, like, I'm sure there are some directors who... Uh, could be presented with that opportunity and make something great. Like I'm, I'm sure that's the case. Yeah, I bet. I bet Scorsese's uh, film is going to be good. Is he doing a Netflix film? Yeah, then his next film, The Irishman, is going to be a Netflix film. Wow. Um, yeah, so I'm sure it's not it's not a, a business model or or a production model that is uh, fatally flawed or anything like that. But maybe maybe just picking these. Maybe picking like mid range directors is not the best. Maybe they need some sort of like. Uh... They maybe they need a better vetting process, so they don't just yeah. greenlight everything, and they have a bit more hands-on, a bit more of a hands-on role in ushering them into existence. I feel like there's still ones that I'm like, oh, this sounds interesting. Actually, I bet I bet High Flying Bird is going to be the good one. Yeah, because I can imagine Soderbergh is the sort of director who would absolutely flourish under that kind. But of... But yeah, because he because he seems to force under most conditions that he put, imposes on himself. Yeah. Like, because these directed films that are both big and small and, and both, like, have resulted in pretty interesting projects in general. And also, he's, he's perhaps offset um, the freedom that Netflix has given him by imposing his own limitation, which is filming it on a mobile phone. Did you watch uh, Unsane? No. Did you? No, but I heard really good things about it. I wanted to watch it, if that, makes any, if that means anything. <laughs> cool. Noted. Yeah, I know. Maybe I'll watch that for our episode on High Flying Bird, which will be our next episode, I assume. Mm, yes. Uh, so, okay, so Velvet Buzzsaw. You loved it, I hated it. I loved that, it. right? Absolutely. Is it your favorite, your favorite film of all time? Uh, ooh, I wouldn't say all time, but at least the last 45 years. Okay, okay. Well, what, is, what is better than it, then? Um, uh, Angels Have Wings. <laughs> angels have wings. I don't. I don't know. I, don't, I haven't heard a movie. I don't a movie called, called that. Angels don't have wings. <laughs> you know, it's called Only Angels Have Wings. Only Angels Have Wings. I think so. <clears throat> All right. So bonus features. Bonus features. Bonus features. Bonus features. Bonus. Bonus features. Bonus features. Bonus. Bonus. Uh, so for class, I watched a film called Chronicle of the Summer, uh, which is a Jean Roche film, which I didn't really enjoy that much. That was like completely fine, but it was like whatever. I'm not going to describe it at all. <laughs> Just think about it as being completely fine. Okay. Yeah, I watched Takashi Miike's Ley Lines, which is the last in the Black Society trilogy. That's what it's called. Uh, quite good. Were these made in sequence? 
No, yes. Well, I mean, it's like a retrofitted trilogy as far as I understand it. Like a thematic trilogy or something. Yeah, I mean, none of the films have anything in common except for this there with some actors and stuff. Okay. Um, but the Black Society trilogy, or the uh, Leylines is probably the most, the one that's the most explicit about its themes of, like, racism and stuff, which is interesting. Because, you know, you don't really watch that many Japanese, I mean, if you watch a lot of Japanese movies, not many of them are about uh, the minorities in Japan, for the most part. No, no. Um, and it's a pretty, pretty well done movie. It has some really horrible stuff as is typical in, uh, Mike, I think. But it's a, um, it's an interesting film, for sure. Um, I watched Mikey and Nikki, which is Elaine May's film about two sort of, uh, male friend gangsters played by, um... Uh, John Cassavetes and uh, Peter Falk, and uh, that's very good. You've seen that. I have. Um, it's just a very good sort of depiction depiction of like uh, toxic men, um, and male friendship. I think, and sort of how you know friendships falling apart and that sort of stuff. It's very funny and uh, stuff. There's a lot of qualities that I enjoyed. It's very well shot. It's funny, as I say. Both John Cassavetes and uh, Peter Falk are pretty incredible. Do you agree with me on that? Yeah, they're great in it. I think all the I think the performances across the board by pretty much everyone who appears. Are really it really good. made me want to watch uh, Wayne May's other films, mm. um, which I haven't seen any of. So it was a good place to start, I think. Because um, it is it, it it's it's a pretty like um, when you watch it you're sort of like oh I understand what this is you know it's just like a generic or a, a genre gangster picture about these two sort of rockable guys but it really unfolds in a much different way and it's a really great supporting turn by um, Ned Beatty as a hitman yeah he's great um, and it's a it's just a very odd but entertaining and Slightly moving film, I'd say. Uh, what else did I watch? I watched Side by Side, which is a documentary about uh, digital film, which is pretty entertaining. What is it? Side by Side? Yeah, it's like a Nicolas Cage, or Nicolas Cage, um, Keanu Reeves narrated film about the um, the differences between 2D on film and di- video and sort of the rise of uh, digital video as being the main sort of uh, <clears throat> you know, think of the industry or whatever. It's pretty entertaining, but uh, it's a little lightweight. I think in part it's a very, very sort of standard talking head documentary. Uh, and then I went and saw the Oscar nominated shorts, which I just I'll just quickly go by and tell you if you should watch them or not because they're short films. I don't want to go too into much into too much detail because I don't want to spoil them. But um, uh, I saw Bow, which was good. Weekends, which is good. And then Late Afternoon, Animal Behavior, One Small Step, Wishing Box, and Tweet Tweet, all of which were bad. Um, that's all I watched. 